All right, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Under the Dome. Guess what? Training camp is here. It seems like it took forever, but it's finally here. The rookies reported last week. This week, the veterans report. And I think this weekend, Saturday or Sunday, maybe. I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head, but they actually put on the pads and we see real hitting going on. And it's now Saints football from now until February. Let's be optimistic. Till February. Hopefully uh, deep into February. Yeah. Uh, I'm your host, Alan Oric, with uh, my co-host here, Sean Williams, who is house-sitting. So he is not in the Under the Dome studios. He is in a foreign land. How are you doing tonight, Sean? I am in a blank canvas of a room, but I'm here to tell you that Casa Hoover is very accommodating, and it is, it's happening. I call it the dugout. Uh, I can look, I'm on the second floor, I can look out the window, and I cannot see the top of the hill that this house was cut into. But it, it's awesome. It's awesome. Uh, we want to welcome you to, I guess, unless you count, kind of halfway count last week, this is the first broadcast of year number three, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just just the two of us tonight. We figured we didn't want to uh, didn't want to wet everybody's expectations by watering down the product and having anybody but us two on tonight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, while I'm on the subject, our man Bob Rose from uh, the Bayou Blitz, asked that I remind everyone tomorrow night he is going to have a very special guest on his show, uh, former New Orleans Saints starting quarterback Jim Everett is going to be joining Bob on uh, on the show tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Uh, and what a lot of people don't realize, he was the original Saints Purdue quarterback. Uh, didn't turn out quite as well for Jim as it did for the latest uh, Purdue quarterback for the New Orleans mm-hmm. Saints. But, you know, that that's the way the ball bounces. Uh, we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. I invite you guys to subscribe to us on iTunes and on YouTube at Under the Dome Podcast. Uh, join us on our Facebook page at Under the Dome Podcast. Uh, Twitter, Twitter. Uh, if you'll check the uh, the link, all of our Twitter handles are attached to that every week. Um, as Alan alluded to, oh, and Fan First Productions, our sponsors. <laughs> got got to thank yep. them. Absolutely. Uh, as Alan alluded to, uh, training camp officially opened uh, with the rookies reporting, and the the veterans won't be reporting till. Uh, mid to tomorrow. The, they come tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be basically shorts and shells, and up until this weekend when they strap the leather on, and here we go. Yeah, uh, I was just looking to make sure of the date. I wasn't sure if it was Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. It's actually Friday, the twenty seventh. The eight fifty to eleven forty a.m. practice will be the first one in pads. And it's also the first practice open to public, weather permitting, of course. You always have to put that caveat in there because, you know, in New Orleans, the weather can change. You can get the uh, go from sunny to rainy to sunny again. 
in no time. So, yeah, weather permitting, the AM, the Friday morning practice, first one in pads. I'm here to tell you I've been on airline drive in July at 8.50 a.m. Mm-hmm. No, not the kid. Y'all send me a postcard, uh, tag me in your photos. I ain't going. <laughs> well, you know, you know it's insane. Of course, you know it, they only have a no- certain number because of, of the OTAs. They only have so many practices and pads. Uh, it's strictly limited, and you can't. There's no more two a days. You don't. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I hit the back. You can't have. Cons- I, I think you can't have consecutive two a days. I think you have to have a day off in between, or you can have a padded practice in the morning, shorts and shells in the afternoon, padded practice the next day, and short and shells. You can't have back-to-back padded practice. Well, in 1976, when Hank Strand was named head coach, he had three-a-days. Three-a-days. So you had your morning practice, your afternoon practice, then he had a night practice. And uh, I'm trying to remember which player it was that said it. But after that training camp in Vero Beach with Hank Stram, the three-day practices and things like that, the very first game, uh, the Saints just got totally stomped. I think it was by the Minnesota Vikings. They got totally stomped. And one of the players sat back and said, you know, thank God Hank Stram gave us, put us those three-a-day practices because imagine how much worse that defeat would have been if we didn't have that third practice every night. <laughs> You know, I can remember as a player, uh, and we're talking 84, 85, 86. Uh, I can vividly remember it in before school took in, we would have uh, morning practice, uh, a light uh, shorts and helmets, basically a walkthrough in the middle of the day and then later towards the evening we'd practice under the stadium lights Mm -hmm. but uh three three a days were that was the way that it was done back in the day man well you they were trying to get you guys in shape and uh they were that's also when they the only way they could teach the offense and defense i mean you know our high school offense was three yards in a cloud of confusion um I mean, it just really wasn't wasn't very sophisticated so uh it was just that that was just but that was where they were teaching guys and trying to figure out where they belong so you had to have a lot of practice cuz you had I don't remember how many kids were on the high school team but let's just say 50 something kids showed up okay you got to figure out who's good and who's not um you know, so you have a lot of practices early on. You have the jamborees and you have those things where you kind of got to get a feel of what you got, what your team does right, what they do wrong, what the best plays they run, and who the best players are. So that's kind of why they didn't. And you're young. They figure they could use you up and burn you out. Um, you know, because the worst could happen is you just quit and walk away. And they, it takes care of their cut and form. You know, um, when my son played, uh, at Brother Martin, they in fact told him there was no, there weren't going to be any cuts. They were just going to run you out. You know, they were going to wait. They had a hundred and something kids show up, and they're just going to wear them all down till somebody walks off. You know, 
and you may never you may never get to see the field. You get to stand out there every Friday night with your helmet in your hand and just watch. You know, so it's it it that's that's just how things were done back then. Well, the school that I went to, uh, by the end of the season, after injuries and academics figured into the equation, we would usually wind up with about 17 players. We wouldn't even have enough to scrimmage in practice, offense and defense. You, you'd have to go one side of the line versus one side of the defensive line. Uh, I remember those practices, yeah. Uh, but by the same token – when you started, if you had an ounce of ability uh, athletically, then you would uh, you you would be starting offense, defense, special teams, kickoff, kick return, punt, punt return. Uh, you basically did everything except carry the water out on the field at, during timeouts. Uh, and I loved it, and, and I really. That was in Louisiana. You go from Class A, which is the smallest, to Class 5A now. Of course, when I was in high school, it was 4A. Uh, but I went to a Class A school, and the only reason we were Class A was because we have, had a football team. We were actually a Class B school uh, in terms of size. But uh, my son went to high school at West Monroe, which was a 5A school. And I, I hate that he did not get to enjoy being a part of the the process the way that I was because he went to such a large school. They could afford to be selective about who they played and why they played them. And uh, let's just say Baton Rouge is not the only place where politics are involved <laughs> in the state of Louisiana. Um. But, you know, when it comes to the 2018 New Orleans Saints, mm -hmm. we've discussed in great detail the schedule and uh, we've done the positional analysis. Let me ask you, Alan, um, when it comes to looking at this team as a whole, factoring in all of those uh, positional upgrades that we've done, factoring in the strength of schedule that we face, is it outside the realm of possibility or uh, beyond expectations that the New Orleans Saints could repeat as NFC South division champions again this year? No, it's not because, um, you know, the, the, uh, let me back it up a little bit. The Saints have made upgrades and you look at it, you look at what's going on in, in Tampa with Jameis Winston getting suspended for three games. You look at what's happening in Atlanta where we see that Julio Jones is threatening to hold out. Um, you know, and then with Carolina, they've got new ownership. This may or may not be the final go-round for this head coach, um, Rivera. You know, Ron Rivera, because, you know, is this new owner going to put his own people in there with a new general manager, new coach? If the team underachieves or they think they underachieve, you know, Carolina's got a lot of question marks and they've got to figure out what their identity is going to be. Are they still going to be Cam Newton centric? Are they going to try and get the ball out to 
uh, their playmakers that they have. You know, well, I think the most interesting, I think the most interesting dynamic with the Carolina Panthers is this is the first full off season that this general manager has been in position. Yeah, if you remember it was dear. I want to say it was during training camp or right at the beginning of the season last year when the guy left and this guy uh, came in. I- I'm not certain of that. But this is the first full off season that he's been the general manager. So mm-hmm. that can drastically alter the direction that a football team is taking. And yeah. you, as you alluded to, you factor in new ownership and – it, it could be uh, really interesting to see where this team goes from here uh, and with Rivera as well. Well, you know, if, if we're going to make predictions, I don't think it's without, you know, outside the Roman possibility that you have the same finish you had in 19, I mean, you had last year. Saints, uh, Panthers, Falcons, those three teams with Tampa bringing up the rear again. Um, so, I mean, there, there's, we have to see what happens as far as injuries. We have to see what happens as far as, uh, you know, what, how those first four or five games shake out for these teams. If we, uh, but if I'm going to look at make an early crystal ball prediction, I think that, you know, Carolina has a lot of questions they need to answer and figure out for themselves. I think they're going to take the first few weeks trying to just do that. And I think Atlanta is going to have a lot of turmoil in their roster um, because I really think Julio Jones wants out. Um, he wants to get paid or he wants out. He is a Daryl Revis kind of guy. Um, what was it? It was what? April, May, that uh, Julio Jones took all his Atlanta Falcon stuff down off his social media. Yeah, first. yeah. And just they were like, oh, yeah. And then the Falcons were like, oh, that's just he's, – he's just getting out of social media. He, he wants to downplay social media. No. No, he was disgruntled then. And he is going to – he wants to be the highest-paid player, and he wants all the recognition of being the best receiver. Uh, and he is willing – he is – it's all about him. It's not about team success. I just – I'm just thinking about – that game against the Saints on Thursday Night Football. Remember him yelling at Matt Ryan <laughs> after yep. one of the interceptions? And remember him like just ranting and raving about things? For a quiet player, that just really popped out to me. It's like I didn't expect yeah. that out of Julio Jones. And, and then uh, the, the second time that we played Atlanta uh, in the Superdome, there was a, a point where uh, the camera was on him on the sidelines and Matt Ryan walked up and started talking to him, and he just turned his back and walked away from him. Yeah. And like, like the you said, bu- for the ultimate team player, that, that sort of stuff sticks out. Yeah. And- the butt pick. Uh, you know, I hate to say that term, but the butt pick, he's not even on the field on third down. And I think he has some frustrations with Steve Sarkeesian as the offensive coordinator. I don't think he likes Sarkeesian. I think um, he doesn't like his role in the offense. He wants to go back to Shanahan's offense when he was the feature guy. Um, you know, you think about that Carolina game during the Falcons Super Bowl run. Um, you know, Ryan throws over 500 yards. Who was the primary uh, uh, target for him? 
the target was Julio Jones. Julio Jones just tore apart that Panther secondary. So I get roasted all the time because I don't acknowledge Julio as being the second coming of Jerry Rice the way so many people do because you'll have him go off for over 200 yards in in receiving in one game and you won't hear anything from him for a month. Yeah. He'll catch one pass or catch one touchdown. But at the same time, you have to respect him enough to account for him on every play that he's on the field. Oh, I, I, you know, he is, he is, I, I agree. He is probably, he is the best receiver in the NFL. I think Michael Thomas is getting there, but Julio has the skins on the wall right now to say he is the best receiver in the NFL. He is to me, he's not Jerry Rice, but he is what Megatron should have been. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he is what he, uh, Megatron would have been with, a really, really talented quarterback for his entire career. Well, a better team, a better offense in general, an offense that better suited him. Um, yeah. I mean, Matt Stafford, he he is talented and he is a good quarterback, but it the offensive scheme is not mature enough. How many offensive coordinators have the Lions gone through, you know, including Joe Lombardi, but they've gone through a lot of offensive coordinators trying to put together a good offense. They've never had a creative offensive mind uh, probably since Mouse Davis back in the Barry Sanders days. And that was a run and shoot based offense, but the Lions have never had that creative offensive mind. So Megatron was always, he's, he's a great player, but he's not there yet. You know, he it's, it's, it's not happening yet. You know, he's not a, he wasn't Marvin Harrison. He wasn't, you know, as much as I can't stand the guy, he wasn't Terrell Owens. He wasn't, you know, Jerry Rice. He wasn't that receiver where you're like, oh, my God, we have to account for him every game. And well, I mean, the way that the game has progressed in recent memory, you, the days of going up against a team that has a preeminent wide receiver and him dictating the – the pace of the game and the outcome of the those days are over because with with the the way that defenses are structured and prepared more than anything these days and with all the sub packages and the constant moving in and out of players if if a defensive coordinator is even average he he will find a way to isolate and eliminate one threat on the field Right, you, but you if can't you, you can't have a great wide receiver that's going to kill you if you don't have a equally great running back or quarterback or well, you another, need a great quarterback. Another you receiver. Quarterback. You need the great quarterback because if you put and let's just say Gronkowski's gone and tomorrow Tom Brady gets Julio Jones, you know. If Tom Brady gets Julio Jones, it's another 2008 season because Julio would do for Tom Brady what Randy Moss did for Tom Brady in that 2008 season or 2007 season. You know, it would just, he would set the NFL record for touchdown passes, all that stuff. Because, you know, same thing you put Julio Jones in the Saints offense, 
you put Julio Jones against an elite quarterback, Peyton Manning in his prime, you put Julio Jones on the Packers with Aaron Rodgers, you know, you, you've got a weapon and an offense that's going to use him because you've got a creative offensive coordinator and you have a, an elite quarterback throwing in the ball. That's not to say that Matt Ryan's not an elite quarterback. I just – Shanahan was the closest they had to a coordinator that knew what to do with him and how to use him, move him around the field to get the matchup you want. He's still your primary target. It's just he's not always going to be lined up in the X. He's going to be everywhere, and he is yeah. going to – Dictate coverage, and when it comes, when it's nut crunching time, um, it's the ball's going to Julio. You know it. The defense knows it. Everybody in the stadium knows it, but you can't stop it because they will figure out a way to get him open. So it will go to him, you know. And yeah. that's to me that that that's what's that's what's got him frustrated. He wants to be paid like the top receiver in the NFL. Wants to be paid like the top one of the top five players in the NFL, and he wants the recognition of being a top five player. And he hates Steve Sarkeesian. Sarkeesian, sorry, um, <laughs> I, I butchered some names, man. You know, I yeah, but you about, haven't in a while, though. Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking about old Sarkeesian this weekend, you know, because I was drinking every day, so I was like, hey, I'm getting Steve Sarkeesian. <laughs> Oh, by the way, it's worth noting that today is National Tequila Day. Yeah, I uh, I heard that, and, you know, I, I forgot to play all my tequila songs. I didn't play the Pee Wee Herman <laughs> theme. I did play Tequila to Make a Clothes Fall Off, but I didn't play any other songs. So, you know. Well, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that. There we go. There we go. All right. Um, uh, okay, well, moving down the list there, uh, <laughs> I know we've discussed this before. Is it, again, is it beyond the realm of expectation that the during that first four weeks of the season that the Saints are going to be without Ingram? That, And I'm not even going to throw the obvious uh, jersey that you're, you're sporting <laughs> tonight. I'm not going to throw him under the bus, so to speak, in this equation. Are the Saints going to be able to devise a game plan well enough, considering how crucial it was to their success last year to have not just Ingram, but Ingram and Kamara? Are they going – and I feel foolish for even asking this, but uh, it was asked to me, so uh, here we go. Uh, are they going to be able to uh, expect better than uh, – the, the popular term to get the split in that four games. You, uh, I, I mean, you got to realize who the, who the offense coordinator is. It's Sean Payton. Is he going to develop a game plan? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, here's, here's what you're going to be missing though. You're going to be missing the running game. We're going to see another pass heavy offense, you know, for those first four games, you know, and, and that's the part people don't make. Uh, that people don't understand, you know, this is an offense based in the past. This idea of being a power running team or this idea of running the ball consistently is really a relatively new concept for the Saints. Although Saints fans have been chanting for it forever. 
and they always point to 2009 where they had balance. Okay. What you'll see is, and let me preface this by saying that for Sean Payton in his mind, a short pass, a swing pass, a bubble screen, a screen pass, those pass plays are equal to extended handoffs or pitches in his mind. That's a running mm-hmm. play in his mind. So in his mind, if I call four bubble screens or I call, you know, the, the, the one-stop swing the pass out real quick, think about 2006, the big hit on Reggie Bush against the Eagles. The Saints ran that play a lot. Um, you know, the quick, the quick hitter to the outside. I run those kind of passes to backs, and it's important to note that the Saints have brought in a lot of pass-catching backs, not power runners. Shane Vereen and Terrence West are both primarily pass-catching backs. Boston Scott. Boston Scott's another one. Um, You're going to see much more of Drew Brees throwing the ball and much more of getting these guys out in space, looking for matchups, and treating the short pass like a run. Okay? They will run the football. You know, you will have Kamara run the football. You will see some of these other backs run the football, but it's not going to be uh, offset eye, one tight end, two receivers, here it comes. We're going to pound you. It's not going to be that way. It's not going to do that. They don't really do that even with Ingram, but yeah, you're just going to see less obvious running plays called. I think in the short yardage situations, you're going to start seeing a lot more of those those quick uh, hitters by the fullback, um, Zach Line, getting the short yardage plays. You know, much like we used to, remember, we used to see that all the time with the fullbacks. Um, you know, going back to Heath Evans, going back to um, All Start, All Start. Yeah, well, not All Start, but I'm thinking about the Saints Saints fullbacks. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Mike Carney. Um, you know, John Coon. You saw those quick hitters where they would slip the ball to the fullback and he just kind of power over for a couple yards for those key short yardage first downs. You'll probably see a lot of that stuff in the fourth, in the first four games. Um, I'm a little more optimistic now about those first four games than I was earlier this year. Um, uh, because with Jameis Winston being out, I think that game is a must win. I think we can take that game. And as bad as a history we have against the Browns, I think that first game, game against the Browns, we can take them. Um, it's those other two games I'm really worried about. So um, how we do without Ingram but throwing the ball well is going to depend on more to me, for me at least, the receivers. How well the receivers do getting yards after the catch and stretching the field. If they can do that, that opens up that whole underneath area for players like Kamara uh, to make some damage. So the impact of Ingram not being there, it won't be felt at all. I think Peyton can develop a good game plan. I just don't know. I have an idea how it's going to be come out, but we'll have to see how well that that's executed. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, 
and I hate to use this term, the next man up thing, but, um, you know, you got Camaro, you've got some, some talent being brought in, as you alluded to, mm-hmm. uh, Vereen, Scott, uh, and I mean, then as an afterthought to all of that, you've got Drew Brees and Michael Thomas sitting over there, how are they going to figure into it? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Drew Brees has done amazing things with far, far less than what he's got at his disposal right now. So I, I don't, I don't really expect. I, yeah, it's Ingram has been a back-to-back thousand-yard rusher. Yeah, him being out is going to affect this team. There's no doubt about that. Uh, yeah. Now, how much it affects it that. You know, I I tend to go back to the same old thing. That's going to come down to not who else you have, but to how you game plan for the teams that you're facing. Uh, And and that's what I think it it boils down to. This is why the Julio Jones holdout is interesting. Because let's just say, for the sake of argument, we're now in week three of the preseason. Julio Jones has not shown up yet. I don't know if this will happen, but I'm just saying. And he is starting to say shit like, you know, I will never wear a Falcons jersey again. Or I would rather retire than put on a Falcons jersey again. You know, you, you've heard these ultimatums players throw out. You know, and then you start seriously hearing trade conversations and things like that. And, and Julio Jones says, I'm willing to sit out the entire season unless they give me a raise. You know, and all that stuff goes on. And this is throughout training camp. So now we're in week three of training camp, which is supposed or week three of preseason, which is supposed to be the week that you play your starters for uh, three quarters. And let's just say that uh, Julio's holding out. Atlanta feels like, you know what? This is going to, we can, we won this game. We look pretty good throwing the ball. Ridley looks good. Sununu could play that one. We could put Ridley at two. Make some. We could do some stuff. We could get some draft picks, and they start entertaining trade ideas. You know, I'm getting way ahead of myself. But what I'm trying to get to is that week three matchup with the Falcons. If Julio Jones isn't there, or Julio Jones is there physically, but mentally he's like, man, f this place, you know. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna go through it, go through the motions, or whatever. That really opens up a lot of interesting possibilities because I, I, I'm gonna give us the fact that we're gonna beat Tampa Bay in Week One. We're probably gonna beat the Giants in New York, uh, just because I don't have any confidence in the Giants with new coaching staff and all that stuff. I, I just don't know. If the Giants, I think they're they're going to get there, but they they're going to be a work in progress. I can't see them coming out in September, really playing well. Um, so it's Cleveland, who we've had a crappy history with, and Atlanta in those two middle games. Cleveland week two, Atlanta week three, and I just I don't want to count my chickens because this could all go to hell tomorrow and. Julio shows up and they give him his raise and he's all happy and everything else. But if you got a disgruntled Julio Jones and he has to come back because he can't afford any more fines, I think they want to find him $40,000 a day. 
Wow. He can't afford any more fines. No wonder know. he wants a raise. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, because Atlanta has – he's already got a new deal. He got a new deal two years ago or a year and a yeah. half ago. I think you it know, was last wants, year. Yeah, and he wants another one now. You know, if, if Atlanta's you know management – why? Because Antonio Brown got that deal. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we got to talk about we got to talk about one other thing too um, regarding Todd Gurley and Kamara and Ingram. But anyway, yeah. and that deal, how that impacts and. But what I'm saying, yeah, Antonio Brown affects us too because of Michael Thomas. But yeah, regardless, um, you know, if he doesn't get that deal he wants and he is forced to come in. Or Atlanta really thinks seriously about trading him for draft picks, you know, to some team that he thinks is going to be competitive. Let's just say he's, they sent him to the 49ers to be reunited with Shanahan, you know. I, I don't want that to happen, but let's just say that happens. You know, week three becomes really interesting because how does Atlanta do this now without Julio Jones on the field? Yeah, he doesn't catch much touchdowns, but you have to account for him every game. So, yeah, that makes that game really interesting. So I'm really going to watch to see. I'm hoping he is disgruntled. I'm hoping that he holds out all of training camp and doesn't get a deal. So he comes back pissed off and doesn't care about Atlanta anymore, just wants out of there. You know, so that would be a – a good game, you, you're catching them in a good time in that case, even without Ingram in the game. So that's just my thinking, my deluded Saints fan thinking. Well, if he's going to go to anybody, it, it, it needs to be somebody that hates Atlanta, don't you think? Well, <laughs> if Atlanta's smart, they got, yeah. If Atlanta's smart, they're going to trade him to the AFC. Somebody's keyboard and, just melted. Yeah, <laughs> if Atlanta wants to really wants to get rid of uh, Julio Jones, they got to send him over to, I don't know, a team like the Chiefs or a team like um, the Bengals or somewhere where they don't have to deal with him. The Jets. You know, you don't... <laughs> yeah. Send him to Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo. You know, you send him somewhere where he, you know, they don't have to. They don't have to deal with him because uh, if you put him in the Forty ers the danger you have with that is, okay, let's just say he goes to the 49ers. Well, the 49ers are putting together a team again. Um, you have to deal with them in the playoffs, you know, and, and that's not something Atlanta would want to have to face. Um, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, Atlanta would be stupid to trade him, but, you know, we are talking about the Falcons, and, you know, it, it's a stupid franchise, so <laughs> – <laughs> Well, you alluded, you made mention of the fact uh, that Los Angeles Rams running back Todd Gurley signed a monumental deal, keeping him in uh, La La Land for five more years at... And speaking of disgruntled players... (laughs) uh, Go ahead. Was it 50 or 80 mil? Uh, you know what? I don't. I, I want to say fifty. Um, I think you're right. Let me just make sure. I think it's eighty mil is the uh. Oh, girl, look at that. Pops up first thing. 
Todd Gurley signed a $45 million deal for running back. Now, that's insane. You know, he's 23 years old. I get that. And he is the centerpiece. Well, one of the big key pieces of your offense, you know. But people just don't pay running backs like that anymore because he's one knee injury away from – I don't care how young he is. One serious knee injury away from – being out of football, you know, uh, another serious knee injury. Yeah, the yeah, uh, you're you right. Got to, you got to remember Georgia. his history at Georgia. Uh, yep, yep. A, a a compound fracture, I believe it was, of his knee. Yeah, it was a it was a sixty million dollar deal with a forty five million guaranteed bonus, uh, or percent forty five million guaranteed. But yeah, that people just don't pay running backs like that anymore. And that's an interesting deal because it affects so many different players. Here you have Le'Veon Bell in Pittsburgh who's looking for a new deal, and Pittsburgh's not paying him. No. Um, He's likely to be on his in his last season with the Steelers, I would imagine. Exactly. Uh, the Steelers just don't pay running backs, and they're not going to. Nobody and most does. Teams, yeah, exactly. Most teams don't pay running backs. It's easier to get another one in the draft. You know, we were talking about Ingram earlier. Ingram's in the contract year. It is not inconceivable if he does not agree to a deal similar to the one he has right now, which was a $16 million deal, that the Saints will just let him go in free yeah. agency and just draft another running back. And see, that's the part of the equation. We were talking about that first four games of the season. Mm -hmm. and, and I hate to be the prophet of doom, but it's as much a um, an audition for Camara and company as it is anything. Well, they're not going to pay Camara either. That's the point. They won't even pay Camara. You know, so let's just say Camara blows up and he becomes this, you know, the the uh, star running back, the the Marshall Falk of this offense. The Saints are going to pay him. They're going to pay Michael Thomas if they pay anybody. And remember, Michael Thomas is looking at eighty million dollar deal that Antonio Brown got, which is why Le'Veon Bell isn't going to get paid. So that's the that's the thing. I mean, you you can only pay so many players, and the Rams. I read something earlier, and it, it's true. I don't know who went to the settings function on the Rams organization and disabled the salary cap, but the Rams are paying players and acting like there's no salary cap. You know, I can hear um, Apollo Creed. Yeah, I, no, I can hear Apollo Creed yelling in Rocky Balboa's ear from Rocky Three: "There is no tomorrow." There is no tomorrow, you know, and that's the Rams mentality right now when it I, comes I see, to paying players. I see Oprah Winfrey. You get a big contract, and oh, yeah, you that get too. a big contract. Everybody get gets big a big contract. contract. Everybody but Aaron Donald. Aaron Donald's not getting a big contract. Aaron and, Donald and, is getting As you and I over. Have, have discussed ad nauseum, the seeds for dissension are planted, man. Oh, yeah. And, Aaron the Donald's only way that one. you're going to succeed as a franchise is to be a well-oiled machine. And that gums up the work. Money entering into the equation is always going to be the 
biggest thing that causes yeah. the downfall. Aaron Donald's walking around going, all these MFers are getting paid. <laughs> and I and I I'm the top five player in the in the NFL. In the NFL, not even defensive tackle, defensive line, top five player in the NFL. And all these other motherfuckers are getting paid, and I ain't getting paid nothing. Yeah. Let's see how this is going to play out. Yeah, that, that dissension starting. And I find it amazing. They played, they paid and, Brandon and, Cooks like a number one receiver, and he's not. He's not. And they're, and they're paying Todd Gurley like he is Jim Brown. In this kind of NFL, where running backs are toilet paper. You use them and you flush them and you That's move right. on. DeMarco Murray's retired. What was it? Three years ago now? He was the thing in running backs. Yeah. He was the, you know, he was running behind yeah. that Cowboys offensive line. And now he's retired. What this, is, this is not the 1970s. A running back is not going to be the feature piece of your offense anymore. You can't it's just another position. Like but you can't pay him like that because they take the most punishment of any player on the team outside of, you know, Lyman getting their legs cut. But they take the most physical punishment because they have pounded themselves into those linemen and they're getting hit all the time. And, you know, with so many teams doing running back by committee – Gurley's not Adrian Peterson. Gurley's good, but he's not Adrian Peterson good. You know, he is not. The Rams are not going to put the ball in Gurley's hand 30 times a game, and he's going to rush for over 2,000 yards. It's just not going to happen. No. You know, him like that. Right in front of him, you have uh, a guy that was in the running for uh, league MVP last year. In Jared Goff, and you're gonna you're gonna uh, showcase that talent because yeah, he's a quarterback. So, are you not gonna pay Goff? I mean, is that where this is going? You're just gonna wait it out until Goff is in his franchise year, and then you're gonna tag him. Then you're gonna figure out how to pay him. You know, you're gonna win. You're gonna hopefully win a championship or two with Goff and his rookie deal. Is that the is that the end game for the Rams? This year they're going to win a championship, and next year they're going to win another. You know, like I, I know the marketing side of it. I know the we got to get butts in the seat, so we're going to pay these guys. But from the football side of it, you're taking an awful risk with your salary cap because you've got the cash now and burning it. You know, like you're the federal government, um, just spending money like drunken sailors um, without thinking of long-term repercussions on the f fortunes of your team if it doesn't work the way you want it to. Want it to. I mean, I don't want to be in cap hell even if I have two Super Bowl trophies in the, in the, uh, in the uh, display case. And Because look at the Ravens. The Ravens did that. The Ravens put it all in for one run, and they got their trophy. And what happened? Well, Ray Lewis retires, and then the team, they have to break up the whole team because they're in cap hell. So now the Ravens have now traveled, what, three years since their championship, four years since their championship now? And they have not been a very good team. 
It was in 2013. Yeah. Well, it was a 2012 season. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. January. Yeah. So it, it'll be four seasons this year, 2018, four yeah. years later. Um, so, you know, I, I just don't get it. I, I don't understand the mentality that they're, they're employing, but that's the Rams. That's their choice. But by them doing these things, it affects the Saints. It affects all the other teams in the league. So, I don't know. I don't know. And, and Aaron Donald sitting there watching all this happen, I've got to wonder, you know, we were talking about Julio Jones being disgruntled. Aaron Donald is going to be very angry, but I think Aaron Donald is going to take it out as I'm going to put together a great season because I'm going to hit that market. And if they put the tag on me, I'm not going to sign it. I'm going to make them trade me, you know, especially if they're not, if they're telling him we can't afford to pay you, you know, I think Julio Jones is the kind of player that that'll sulk and hold out and make the, Falcons make a move. Um, I don't think Aaron Donald's quite that way, but it is dissension, and it is, and it very well could blow up on you know be the first thing that blows up the team. Well, I mean, uh, when you're contrasting the two of them, uh, Aaron Donald is in a much. I mean, if you're going by in terms of history, anyway, is in a very 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 much more combustible environment yeah <laughs> in that and, rams locker room than the falcons and, and aaron donald happens to play a position that does get paid a lot teams all willing to spend the money on that not to say wide receiver they don't they don't want to spend the money on but compared to running back teams are going teams michael detillier said it best teams look for two things you need a franchise quarterback who can score lots of touchdowns for you, and you need a guy on defense who can put that other guy's franchise quarterback on his butt. And Aaron Donald can do that. The next thing we were going to talk about is about Marcus Davenport and can he be the key to turning this defense into a Super Bowl defense. Um, Aaron Donald certainly is that piece for any team. And I think the reason why the Saints are willing to trade two first-round picks, um, or burn, I should say, two first-round picks, trading the one for next year to go up and get Marcus Davenport is because they want that guy to be that disruptive player on the other side of Cam Jordan. I don't know he's going to be able to do it this season, though. I, it's going to be hard. Um you know, we said from the very beginning, regardless of how talented he was in college, uh, the NFC South and the NFL as a whole is not going to be uh, Conference USA that he's going up against. No. And, and that I, I don't mean that to, to sell him short in any way. He's a phenomenal athlete. Uh, and, you know, when we drafted him, a lot of people said he'll either be the next uh, – uh, who was it? Uh, Tyler Davidson. Mm-hmm. He'll either be the next Tyler Davidson or he'll be the next Demarcus Ware. Obviously, we're hoping to things kind of trend toward Demarcus Ware, who came from uh, uh, Troy uh, Troy State. Uh, saw him play in college, and I I mean, watching him play in person, 
even then, I, I never would have imagined that he would have turned into what he did. Some guys, you watch, you watch them at that level. Yeah. Um, safety, just... safety for the Dallas Cowboy, Xavier Woods, came from West Monroe High School. Uh, I, I, Right above the um, dinner table. Were you trying to fix it? No, I wasn't trying to fix it. I guess pool time is over. Anyway, you see these guys play at every level along the way, and some of them you can look at and say, that guy right there, he's he's a star. Mm -hmm. Um the guy that was middle linebacker for the Cowboys. Um, and now Win. I'm drawing, I'm, I'm drawing blank now. Played at How LSU. Oh, Brady James. Brady James came from West Monroe High School. When you saw that guy play as a, uh, a, a senior in high school, you knew that sooner or later he was going to be playing on the biggest stage of them all. Uh, but he played for Dallas instead. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I just but, just well go ahead finish. finish uh, Demarcus, I, I watched Bobby Aber play his final game in college. I, I've talked about that game on here several times before. There's something about Bobby that made you believe that he could. Of course, you know he played at a position that very few transition make the transition to the next level. Uh, uh, DeMarcus Ware, uh, he was really, really good. Uh, mm -hmm. But there was nothing about him that stood out to the point to make you believe this guy is going to be a multi-time uh, all-pro, la-da-da-da-da. Uh, mm -hmm. But he did. And, well, and Go ahead. I was going to say, well, you know, I and just for tits and giggles, I looked up um, – you know, Pat Swilling's first year in 86. Uh, and then I looked up, uh, you know, Cam Jordan's first year and even uh, uh, Leroy Glover. And, okay, so Leroy Glover's not quite the same because he was actually coming from another team. He also played in NFL Europe to kind of develop his skills. But Pat Swilling's first year, he got four sacks. That would be his lowest total as a Saint from 86 to 92. Uh, the following year, he got 10 and a half sacks, seven sacks in 88, 16 and a half in 89, 11 and 90, 17 and 91, and 10 and a half in 92. So four sacks, his lowest total. He never started a game. He only played in 16 games. Okay. Cam Jordan got one sack his rookie year. So those two. Uh, let's let me just look up Ricky Jackson just to, to make it uh, Ricky Jackson stats. Um, Ricky Jackson, his rookie year, they weren't keeping track of stats, so it's a lot harder to I mean, sacks. It's a lot harder to kind of gauge this. Um, that's why I really didn't want to include him. 82 is the first year they started counting sacks as a, as a statistic. He got four and a half in nine games in 82, 12 in 83, 12 in 84, 11 in 85. When Jim Moore came, 
nine, nine and a half, seven, seven and a half, six in nineteen ninety, eleven and a half in ninety one, uh, thirteen and a half in ninety two, um, and his last year as a Saint was ninety three, eleven and a half. I mean, so you know, my point is with all of this is you look at some of the, these are some of the top pass rushers in Saints history. Ricky Jackson, Pat Swilling, uh, Will Smith, and uh, and now Cam Jordan, they started out very slow. They did not get many sacks those first couple of years because they're learning position, and they're coming from major league programs. You know, Cam Jordan came from Cal. Pat Swilling came from Georgia Tech. And Ricky Jackson came from Pittsburgh. So, you know, this wasn't even a division two like uh like a um um a, a Texas San Antonio uh UT San is U San Antonio? Yes. USA? I thought so. Okay. So it's not even that level of play. And those guys were struggling in the beginning to kind of I mean they showed a lot of potential. Especially Ricky Jackson. First time he stepped on the field, you knew, okay, we yeah. got something here. Pat Swilling. You saw that speed show up. You knew you had something. Cam Jordan was a little bit longer. You know, I can remember people talking about, well, you know, Cam Jordan really plays a run. He's not much of a pass rusher. Well, you know that, of course, he's gotten better. My, my point is, though, Davenport, it's unrealistic to expect him to come out and just totally explode. Um, I, it's much more realistic to expect Davenport to – only come in on certain packages, sub packages, and sometimes you may not even realize he's going to even be out there. Like, hey, man, did he even play today? Did he even get a tackle today? It, it, it's just the nature of learning how to use your hands as a pass rusher, the nature of understanding what offenses are doing to you, offensive linemen are doing to you. Um, so, you know, you can't judge him on that. So, well, I, I tend to look at, at, at it in a different way with basically coming to the same uh, same end that you do. You mm -hmm. know, he may not record a single sack, but if he walks on that field and the uh, the offensive coordinator is saying, "Okay, he's out there," we can't focus everything on Cam on stopping Cam Jordan. This 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 play, uh, we got to be aware of where he is. If he takes some of the pressure off of what Jordan's going up against, and it allows Jordan or one of the other guys up front to do what they do uh, better or uh, more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If him being on the field allows them to uh, to execute at a better better rate than yeah i know what you're saying to free up free up cam jordan for more one-on-one -on -one yeah. coverage because that's that i was not say, everybody not all wide receivers get to catch the touchdown passes yeah but if they're not taking this cornerback over here this lockdown corner that's supposed to be the best in the league if he's not occupied with that receiver then he's shutting down the guy that did catch the pass so i mean right. it, it's it's a group effort I know that sounds corny and and no, sort of no. off the wall, but that that's the way that I look at it. You know, it, it's not about who gets the stats. I, I could care less about stats. Uh, there's very very rare opportunity for me to 
to sit here and throw out a stat because I, I just, you know, for the guy that gets the sack, there's 10 other guys that contributed to him getting the sack. For the sure. guy that catches the touchdown pass, there's 10 other guys on that. There's a quarterback there that if he doesn't throw a laser and uh, pinpoint accuracy, you don't catch that touchdown pass. So I, I don't put that much stock into the statistical side of things. I know that that carries a lot of weight. Uh, it it boggles my mind sometimes to see the, these things that they put up on social media. Uh, he led the league last year in left-handed uh, mm-hmm. defensive tackles that – rushed the quarterback after three seconds you know yeah. what the hell what does that have to do with playing football I, I they they have taken it to a new and moronic level to me I used to call it the Tony Romo stats it was like they always tried to find a, a new stat to make Tony Romo seem elite uh, you know, Tony Romo always threw three touchdown passes whenever the moon was a full moon in October. You know, I mean, that, that's <laughs> that's the kind of stats they would come up with, and I'm just like, but they didn't win. You know, <laughs> who cares? So anyway, but you know, it was interesting you said that because I just ran through all those sacks that Swilling and Ricky Jackson had. If you notice those numbers, though. Ricky Jackson was drawing a lot of attention in yeah. 85, 86, 87, 88. Uh, it wasn't until 1990 his sack, sack numbers started shooting up, whereas Pat Swilling came out from the get-go. Boom, double-digit sacks every year. And then all of a sudden, you know, granted, Pat Swilling kept coming, but now all of a sudden teams are like, oh, hey, man, we got to watch 56 on the other side there. We know about 57. We've been watching 57 for a while, but 56 is pretty damn good. We got to stop him. So by 91, the two of them are getting double digit sacks. And I think that's what you, if Davenport is what we think he is, and I do think he is that kind of player, you're not going to see that instant impact on a Davenport, but in years two, three, and four, you know, you may see Cam Jordan's numbers go down a little bit while Davenport suddenly becomes this threat. And then defenses are going to, I mean, offenses are going to start saying, hey, we got to watch this guy over here. We know about Cam Jordan. We've seen him. We know about 94, but this guy over here, we got to watch him. We got to start doubling up him. And Cam Jordan starts getting that one on one coverage. So, and I think, I think you're going to see the same thing uh, this coming season out of both Rankins and Onyemata as well. Uh, they're, they're both – Rankins is coming into year three. Yeah. As is Onyemata, I believe. Um, they were both yes, drafted yes. same year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Onyemata came in so raw. He, I mean, mm-hmm. he had only played like – two years of organized football and it was in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, which I, uh, <laughs> I don't mean that as an insult. Um, but you know, it, it's not sec. Uh, but what you're going to see, these guys have gotten a little bit of 
experience. They've gotten a little bit of knowledge. They've gotten a whole lot of coaching to develop them and develop their game to a level that used as a part of the big picture is going to put them over the top, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think it's stepping out too far on the ledge to say, you know, I know that we got Alvin Kamara, we got Drew Brees, we got Michael Thomas, we got eventually Mark Ingram. You know, all of that, this team is going the, – the single factor that's going to dictate for this team how far it goes and how what level it succeeds to is going to be the defense. Yeah. And I believe that with all of my heart. Well, you know, the good news is we saw last year the defense was good enough. I, I think the key is Alex Okafor, how healthy is he? Um, and secondly, do what do we see out of um, – um, oh, come on, the third-round pick from last year from Anzal. Central – No, not, not, not Muhammad. Um, Anzalone. Uh, no, not Anzalone. That's Florida. Um I'm talking about the uh, the uh, the defensive end. Um, oh. oh shoot! Come on, <laughs> I can remember who this guy is. I picture him. I'm drawing. Give me a give me a number. He's the white man. the white boy, white boy on defensive line, uh, number ninety one. Um, uh, Hendrickson. Yes, Trey Hendrickson. Thank you. That's what I'm when I. I referenced Tyler Davidson a while ago. I meant yeah, Trey yeah, Hendrickson. you meant Hendrickson. I know what you're saying. I know what you meant though. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, does Hendrickson take that next step? You know, is he going to be just a run supporter? Or does he actually start showing some pass rushing moves? Because again, well, you know, you know, Rick if you year, think about it, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, I was just saying again, rookie year, you don't produce a whole lot. You're coming in specialty packages now. Towards the end, he played a lot more because. I was looking for towards Achilles, so he had to play a lot more. But you know, you're not getting pass rushing out of him. Does he take that next step and become a pass rusher now, not just a run stopper or a run defensive end? Where does he fit in? You know, that's all the things we have to see now. You know, does Muhammad actually play a role this year? Because uh, he was basically inactive almost the entire season. Does he even make the team? I think he makes the team, but I don't know where he fits in. Uh, and we didn't even talk about um, number 44. Come on. I've he, been waiting this whole time. to Ki-ha-ka. Where does he fit in? Ki-ka-ha. You know? Thank you. See, I, I'm like Buddy D. <laughs> I inverse letters, you know, as I'm trying to say them. Yeah, I don't think he even gets in personally. I don't think he makes a team. I think, in fact, he's trade bait. They tried to trade him yes. last year. He was drafted with the idea of going to a 34 defense. They're not going to play much 3 4 defense. He's not big enough to be a defensive end. He really doesn't do well putting his hand in the dirt. He doesn't have an array of pass rushing moves. He basically is a speed rusher and a bull rusher. And I see the Saints trying to trade him or move him somewhere rather than just cut him out right. But well, him missing at least parts of I believe wasn't it two consecutive seasons with knees? Mm -hmm. 
that that hurts him moving forward. Because uh, you you know one knee, looking at it through coach's eyes, one mm-hmm. knee injury is concerning. Two knee injuries is alarming. Uh, and that was the last time he was hurt was his third since college. So uh, you just – you're basically – you're looking at this guy. Is he going to be worth investing a million dollars in, which mm-hmm. a, as a defensive player in the NFL, as a pass rush specialist, a million dollars is a drop in the hat. Uh, yeah. It, it it's not it's a minimal investment. So uh, and I, I believe you're right. I I I do believe that they'll be moving on from Kikaha. Hey, I, I'm I'm happy. I, I got to hear you try to pronounce Kikaha and Samir oh. in the same broadcast. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm <laughs> um, but yeah. So the long and short answer is. It's a lot to expect Davenport to really produce this year, but I think we should see enough of him to get a glimpse of what he can become. And I think he's going to become a great pass rusher for the Saints, but that's just me being the optimistic Saints fan. Hey, um, real quick, I know we've talked about uh, doing real quick Saints in time top fives. Um, let's just do the top five quarterbacks right now because, uh, you know, we, that's going to take me a good 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I can, I can do that one fairly quickly, but if we start going to well, linebackers, I, I, other I positions. Mean, yeah. Number one is a given. Yeah. There's only been one that's won the Super Bowl. Right. Okay. okay. Moving down from that, uh, Oddly enough, on my list, mm-hmm. my number two or number two, my number three or number three. So okay, okay. Uh, for me, for me, number two is going to be Aaron Brooks, and, and that's not based on anything beyond team success. Mm-hmm. Aaron Brooks took this team to a level that uh, Bobby Abair did not. Now, yeah. be that happenstance, circumstance, uh, surrounding pieces, whatever the equation is, uh, that that's just the way that I I, I see it. And, and following Bobby Abair at number three, I have um, I I'm gonna have to say uh, Jim Everett at number four. <laughs> And my all-time favorite, and you're going to laugh at this, and this is for sentimental reasons, my number five has got to be John Forcade. Wow. <laughs> Forcade. <laughs> he was my favorite until Drew Brees showed up. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, love a- to ren- I love to render you speechless. It doesn't happen that often. No, it doesn't. Um, okay. <clears throat> This is going to shock some people. Well, shocks rocks some people's world. You know, Aaron Brooks is the number two quarterback statistically, but I'm I have to put Archie Manning ahead of Brooks because, and I think this happens for a lot of people. You know, I reveal my age by putting Archie Manning number two because, you know, when you're eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old, that age group, okay. That's the guy, those players kind of stick with you because they're kind of like 
your first. This is why you became a fan of this team. Sure. So, you know, those players stick with you a lot more. And that I know that's true for some people when it comes to Bobby Bear, when it comes to a lot of Saints players. You know, it's what they were first exposed to. This is who, when they think of the Saints, especially looking back as a kid, they see this, you know, these guys, okay? And that seven, in 78 and 79, I'm 11, 12, 13 years old in that range, okay? And that's when this, you know, again, you got to set the stage a little bit. Saints sucked for a long, long time. They still sucked in 78 and 79, but I'm saying they really were bad, like they weren't even an NFL team. You know, it was all about the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Oakland Raiders and the uh, Miami Dolphins and, you know, the Minnesota Vikings. Those were the teams that, you know, everyone talked about. Everyone knew those. They were always on national TV. They were always on Monday Night Football. Um, so you watch these teams, you go, how come we don't have a, a Lynn Swan? Why don't we have a Sammy White? Why don't we have a Fred Blitnikoff? Why can't we get an Earl Campbell? Why can't we get, you know, a Franco Harris or anything like that? You know, and then in 78 and 79, when Wes Chandler shows up and and Henry Childs is playing and you get Ike Harris and Chuck Muncie and Tony Galbraith and Archie Manning has his best years those years, you start thinking, okay, we're finally getting some offense. We're getting a Drew Pearson. We're getting a, a Roger Starback. We're seeing what the Saints could look like if they could be like Dallas and Pittsburgh and all those teams. So that's why those teams stuck with me. So I'm going to put Archie at number two because of those years. Brooks at three because I felt Brooks squandered and Jim Haslett squandered more talent than Archie did. I, I thought that the Saints under Brooks should have been a much better team than they what they were. You beat the Giants 45 to 7, and then the next week you're losing to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And if it wasn't for a miracle touchdown, you got blown out by the Jaguars. And that was back to back weeks. And that would happen all the time. You know, and that's why Brooks will be number three for me because he just it was maddening because you had the talent to beat teams. It wasn't like you had crap on the field. You had Deuce McAllister and Joe Horn. You had good players, and you just could not be consistent offensively. You know, um, Bobby Bear, I've got it four, and believe it or not, Archie Manning has better stats than Bobby Bear does. Really. Yes. Okay. Let's look at let's look at Archie's 78, 79, and 80 seasons. Archie threw for 3,416 yards, 17 touchdowns, 16 interceptions. Um, he goes to the Pro Bowl that year. Bobby Abair in 1987, the Saints' first winning season, only throws for 2,100 yards, 15 touchdowns, nine interceptions. 88, he throws for 3,156. That was his second best total as a Saint. 20 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. He hasn't even completed 60% of his passes yet. Archie's already completed 61%, almost 62% in 78, 60% in 79, 
60% in 80. A Bear gets 62.9 in uh, 89, yet he gets benched in the last four games of the season because he played so badly. In 91, he gets 60%. And uh, that would be, those would be his best two years as a Saint. Uh, his highest total he threw was in 92. He threw for 3,287, 19 touchdowns, 16 interceptions. So, you know, 89, he was 15 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. You know, Archie, on the other hand, he's uh, in 78, 17 touchdowns, 16 interceptions, 79, 15 touchdowns, 20 interceptions, and four of them happened in the span of two games, um, the Raiders and the, uh, and the Chargers game. Uh, in 80, 23 touchdowns, 20 interceptions. Um, that, in fact, in 80 was uh, – 80 and 78 were the only two years where he really – no, and 77 – no, no. 80 and 78 are the only two seasons he threw more touchdown passes than interceptions. Um so, you know, people and Bob, oh, and uh, because they had no running game, Archie threw for almost 4,000 yards in 1980. He threw for 37, 16. Um, you know, put the ball in the air 509 times. That's like a Drew Brees kind of number. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 people, the, the thing about Bobby was he had that defense that really helped him win, and Morton Anderson that helped him win. But as an individual quarterback, he wasn't as good as people remember him being. So it's always funny. You know, you hear people ripping the RG, oh, he sucked, he wasn't that good. And all of a sudden it's like, you really looked hard at Bobby Abair's stats. You know, Bobby, what, Bobby won, but how much of that was a defense and special team? So it's always interesting. And it I would not, have to say – Just go for ahead. the record, let me clarify uh-huh. that uh, my – Putting John Forcade at number five was for my my co-host's benefit. Uh, uh, I, I do have Archie at, at number five. Uh, it, on the strength of more than anything else, exactly what he meant to this franchise when he came here, and, and yeah. what what everything that he's done during and since. Uh, the maddening thing you were talking about, Abear. The thing that, frust- that was so frustrating about watching those teams when Aver mm-hmm. played was the fact that <clears throat> if they cross the fifty yard line, or we've got Morton Anderson. That yeah, we'll throw three times at the end zone. We'll go for it uh, on uh, third and seventy five. We'll run right up the gut, and if we don't make it, we we got Morton Anderson right there. Yeah, I know, I know, and I know. dear God, I, I mean, you've got these weapons and. At halftime, you've got 12 points, not for two touchdowns without extra points because you kick four damn field goals of yep. 60 yards. Yep. That, that oh, man. No, Carl Smith, the master of the third and uh, a five-yard pass pattern on a third and seven. <laughs> no one executed a third a five-yard pass play like like uh, Carl Smith on third and seven. Um yeah, Jim Everett would have to be my fifth one because, you know, quite frankly, now you're scraping the bottom of the barrel once you can pass Everett, and it's not a knock on Jim Everett. 
um, it's a knock on what you had after Everett. I mean, what do you what do you throw in there? Um, you start going into Bobby Douglas's, Bobby Scott's, Billy Joe's. Uh, you know, it just it, it's really it's a whole lot of nothing. Uh, yeah, revolving door. Bill, Billy really Kilmer. Consistent. I mean, Billy Kilmer was the only other starting quarterback of any length of time outside of you know Abair Everett. Uh, you know, Manning, Kilmer, uh, Brooks, and Breeze. I mean, you know, other than that, you had guys that just played just for a little bit, but not do much. Steve Walsh didn't even start a whole season, you know, and 4K never started a whole season. So, uh, I, I'm still holding out for Danny Workle, but you know, yeah, that's just, <laughs> yeah. poor Danny, <laughs> poor Danny, good person, really great person, just not a NFL quarterback. But yeah, yeah, Everett would have to be my fifth one. And um, that's really, you got him at the end of his career, and you really only got two good years out of him. 95 was his best year. He almost threw for 4,000 yards. Um, but just as they, he, the Saints should have been able to turn the corner, you draft Eddie George, you keep Jim Everett, you don't let. Uh, Quinn Early and Wesley Walls walk off, uh, and you build a halfway different decent defense. You might have had Jim Jim Moore might have survived a little bit longer, but you know that's twenty twenty hindsight. Um, now, Jim Moore was a nervous breakdown waiting to happen, brother. <laughs> and well, it just so happens he waited till he got to Indianapolis for it to yeah, happen. But you know. yeah, the they just were so they were no condition to to face free agency when free agency happened. And that really was the death of Jim Moore's teams. Um, They did not understand what was going to happen to their team. And they just didn't pay the people they should have paid. And they didn't keep the players they should have kept because they thought they could just rebuild with younger players and just wasn't meant to be. Um, And Carl Smith was a shitty offensive coordinator. I mean, there's no way of getting around it. I mean, you can, <laughs> you can blame you can blame the and I even talked to Carl Smith about this one day. I met him at a bookstore. <laughs> um, and I didn't tell him he was a shitty offense according to his face or anything like that. I just like I I, I just I, I said I kept wondering why why don't you throw the ball more? Why don't you you know why do you call five yard pass routes on third and seven? You know, why do you do this? And, you know, he'd say, oh, we don't have the weapons. We didn't draft these guys and, you know, this and this and this. And I understand it. You know, there's only so much he can do. You can only you can't make chicken salad out of feathers. But at the same time, you're one of the damn chefs. Go grocery shopping. You know, tell him you need something. Don't give me the And on that note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Um, hopefully by next week we're going to have some substantial uh, news. Hopefully not too bad. Uh, hopefully no injuries to report. Uh, knock on wood. But uh, Knock on, on fiberboard. Yep. Uh Thank you guys for joining us tonight on Under the Dome. Uh, Once again, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast on YouTube and on iTunes at Under the Dome Podcast. 
and invite you to join us once again next Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. We hope to have a, a special visiting guest from one of our division opponents as of next week. Uh, we're working, um, efforting towards that as we speak. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and don't forget Friday's first padded practice. Uh, we get to see uh, who who's who's going to make it. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I, I really am. Um, I think this season has potentially be really special. Unlike the 2014 season, I think this team, the youth, the the closeness this team has, I think they're ready to take that next step. They had that taste of success. They're not going to sit in the laurels. They are going to get better. Um, I think that's that's what you have. You have a team that felt like they left something on the field last year. They didn't get to finish their story, and they want to finish it. So on that note, let's see what this team looks like bringing on the season, uh, looking forward to training camp. Thank you guys for joining us, and good night.